0: What wants to emerge? This is the question we've been asking here at Buddhist Geeks, looking forward to the next year. And I wanted to share that a few things have come up for us as the most important response to this inquiry. Uh, I invite you to check out more about these three areas of focus for us next year and to support us if you're able at BuddhistGeeks.com give. The three things that we're focusing on most clearly next year are one, we're reimagining the Buddhist Geeks podcast, moving to a new format, and to a new season-based approach. We're also growing the Buddhist Geeks dojo, our cloud-based sangha, our training community of now 200 people who are practicing together and exploring together online. And the third thing is we're launching an entirely new training program called meditate.io that is designed to connect the breadth of folks being introduced to meditation through things like smartphone apps to the depth of training that's possible traditionally only through wisdom traditions like Buddhism. So this is a secular program aimed at helping people move from practicing a short amount of time each day and getting the some of the initial benefits of meditation to going deeper and seeing some of the more profound results of meditation in their own lives. So if any of these projects sound interesting, you want to learn more about them. And if you're able to support this and support our work, this takes a huge amount of time, effort, financial resources to get these things off the ground in a way that honors the really deep heart behind them. And so your support is deeply appreciated and deeply needed. You can find out more, again, at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Buddhist Geeks. Exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash Hey, Rowan. Hi, Vince. Hey, cool. Thanks for, again for chatting. Um, I'm really excited about this. Well, I'm happy to join you.
1: I've uh, enjoyed the Buddhist Geeks podcast for many years.
0: Oh, cool. I didn't, I didn't realize that you had uh, listen to some of the podcasts. Oh, yes, absolutely. Awesome. Well, um, you know, just a little background for the folks that are tuning into this conversation. I'm here today with Roland Griffiths, and uh, we really are going to jump into talk a lot about some of the work that he's doing at Johns Hopkins University with the study of psychedelics. And in particular, I'm really curious to talk to you, Roland, about um, some of the stuff you've been doing on the relationship between psychedelics and meditation. Um, and I'd love to just maybe just kick it off if you could share a little bit about um, some of the research that you guys are doing there. And, and am, I, am I correct in assuming you're the sort of lead researcher or the director of the particular project that you're working on? I don't know exactly your title is, but I, I know yes. you're leading it.
1: Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's correct. We're doing work with uh, psilocybin, which is a classic uh, serenergic hallucinogen uh, of the LSD type, and it's the is the psychoactive component of the psilocybe genus of mushrooms the so-called magic mushrooms that have been used for hundreds, if not thousands, of years in various cultures in structured manners for divinatory or religious or healing purposes? And we have a, at this point in time, a pretty broad program going in which we've done work with. Uh, healthy volunteers uh, with cancer patients. We're looking at the addictions. And then my special interest uh, and what brought me into this whole field of study is meditation. So I'm delighted to talk about that. And maybe the best way to start with that is for me just to tell you a little bit about my history, because that's that's what pulled me into this line of research and, and Uh, and that's what I find most interesting about this. I'm, I'm trained as a psychopharmacologist that's, uh, drugs and behavior. And most of my research interests have been focused historically on psychoactive drugs, mostly drugs of abuse. And I've been at Johns Hopkins now for 40 years, um, Starting around graduate school, I, I knew I had an interest in meditation, and I actually tried to meditate in graduate school, and as is the case with many novice uh, meditators, it just uh, it didn't work for me at the time. And I I, I, uh, I really liked the idea of meditation, and <laughs> in spite of the fact that I... You know was trained in pharmacology and neuroscience, and some of the descriptions of how meditation worked didn't fit with what we thought we knew about physiology and and brain and behavior I, I also recognized that these are wisdom traditions dating back thousands of years and so their uh, description of underlying mechanisms may be metaphorical rather than factual. And so I was willing to ignore things that some of my colleagues would not have ignored at the time in terms of explanatory constructs. But anyway, it just, it didn't take. And then uh, about 20 years ago, I got reintroduced to meditation through a friend. And um, and in this this case, the path was Uh, Siddha Yoga, which is a Hindu-based meditation guru practice, Mm -hmm. Uh, but something opened for me there, and uh, there were phenomena that started unfolding, and I became very curious and interested in uh, meditation as a process and, and what was going on and trying to figure out what this particular tradition was teaching and how that fit within the larger context of meditation practices much more broadly and spiritual practices even more broadly than that because I really had no systematic religious training or interest prior to then. And so I got interested in in meditation, started reading uh, comparative uh, religion texts and, and work in the psychology of religion, and then got reintroduced by a friend at the time to this older literature on the classic hallucinogens and the so-called spiritual experiences that can be occasioned under, you know, some kinds of conditions. But, you know, it was alleged that those experiences looked to be very similar to those that have been reported by mystics across the ages. And so here I was, a uh, you know a clinical psychopharmacologist at Johns Hopkins with a lot of experience studying different psychoactive drugs and now a, a deep and abiding interest in in meditation and whatever whatever that meant in terms of unfolding of experiences and so it was at that point that we initiated a study of psilocybin this was just in healthy volunteers now the the rub with st- trying to start a study twenty years ago was that uh research with this whole class of compounds right. had been blocked for decades mm-hmm. because mostly what happened in the 1960s uh it was really thought that the the risks uh which are are real risks and but they're manageable it turns out were thought to outweigh any possible benefits and um And so we persevered and uh, the Food and Drug Administration and my institution, uh, after close scrutiny of our protocols, allowed us to go forward. So we were the first protocol in decades uh, to be allowed to administer fairly high doses of uh, psilocybin or any uh, classic hallucinogen to people who had never before had any
0: such experience. Oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't realize that, that, that you guys had sort of uh, been the first to kind of reopen that, um, that, that line of research. Uh,
1: yeah, Rick Straussman, back in the mid-90s, uh, had done some work with DMT, which is another hallucinogen. But um, he did that in people who were DMT experienced. And to me, much more interesting than that are people... Who don't come in with a, a predisposition or some thoughts that uh, these experiences or these compounds are going to be a benefit to them. I mean, we really wanted to look, as I do today with meditators, at the effects of these com- compounds in people who have not had these kinds of experiences. And that, that, uh, study that we initially ran and we finally we published it in 2006 really oh wow
0: so it's a long study huh oh well we started in 1999 okay that seems long to me i guess probably that's probably a brisk pace for academia maybe i guess
1: yeah it you know uh there were all kinds of obstacles that we had to overcome in running the study not the least of which was (laughs) to get people uh Uh, to trust uh, to enroll in this study because it's a big undertaking and these are all hallucinogen naive individuals and they're hallucinogen naive, you know, for various reasons, but some of which are uh, they're fearful uh, of of the effects or uh, um, uh, or they're, uh, you know, otherwise not disposed to investigate, you know, the nature of mind altering. Substances, mm-hmm. so we had some difficulty in recruiting and and we were very conservative in running uh, the study and um and so the the interesting part of the study for me because I've worked with a lot of different psychoactive compounds over the year. The most interesting piece for me was that uh acutely these drugs really did produce um experiences that map onto these classic occurring mystical type experiences now it it, it may sound unlikely that we can actually uh that we actually have measures of such experiences but in fact we do they, they've been worked out by people in the psychology of religion
0: there, there's like the like the hood mysticism scale i've heard of for instance right yeah hood mysticism scale it was the, the classic uh,
1: measure of this kind of thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, so it, it seemed unlikely that we could measure these experiences, but indeed there are good measures like the Hood Mysticism Scale. And the basic features of these experiences uh, are these. There's this sense of the interconnectedness of all people and things. It's a sense of unity um, sometimes described as pure consciousness, sometimes the, uh, the void, if you will, but some sense of unity. That's also accompanied by a sense of sacredness, of reverence. There's a, a, something of value and precious in this experience. There's another sense that this experience is more real and more true than everyday waking consciousness. There's an authoritative yeah. sense to these experiences, and and I think quite possibly your listeners may resonate to these descriptors because these same kinds of experiences, in various flavors and shapes, arise in meditation, obviously, and um, and then there's. Uh, a sense of positive mood, often open-heartedness, love, and joy, uh, something called transcendence of time and space, where time collapses into the present moment, past and future disappear because it's all about presence. Space becomes vast and endless. And then there's a final quality, which is this noetic quality. It's difficult to put these experiences into words.
0: Yeah. The quality of, the difficulty of putting the qualities into words. <laughs> exactly, and and in fact, uh, I've heard it
1: so many times now because at this point we have uh, we've had over or about two hundred and fifty volunteers, over five hundred sessions, and I go into oh, wow. the room after each session and I'll ask people, so how did the day go? And it's not infrequent that people will say, I can't possibly put it into words or I can't possibly tell you or I don't know what to say about the experience. And and I think, okay, that's one of the six right there. But anyway, so these qualities, uh, you know, have been um, really well described from people in the uh, psychology of religion. They really are quite familiar Uh, within some descriptions of, you know, of meditation uh, practice. And our volunteers as a, you know, as a group were checking those uh, kinds of phenomena off uh, in, in a way that led me to believe that something, you know, was, you know, really interesting going on here that looked like it spoke to, um, these naturally occurring kinds of experiences. So that, so that's one observation, that just acutely something happened, its descriptions fit previous mystical experiences. But the, but the most interesting piece of it was that we brought people back two months after the session and would ask them retrospectively, so, you know, what was that experience like? And we ended up making up new questionnaires to capture this. But people will rate these experiences as being among the most personally meaningful and spiritually significant experiences of their lives. And this is two months later, and it turns out you can ask them over a year later, and probably longer than that, and they'll say the same thing. So there's this, there's this memory for these experiences, and there are, and people make positive attributions to, to uh, positive changes they've made in attitudes, moods, and behaviors. Uh, you know, that they directly link to having had this kind of experience. So, it, you know, it, it, it really looks like at its core um some kind of transformative experience and now to you know go back into uh, the language of meditation and Buddhism you know whether that is stream entering or fits into you know other types of descriptors uh, uh, I'll let I'll let the Buddhist geeks <laughs> decide but uh, you know there's something very seminal these experiences, given the right set and setting conditions, and and either prayer practice, meditation practice, uh, you know, or or substance administration, you increase the probability of having these reorganizational experiences uh, enormously. And um, and so then, the more mundane questions become: Are there therapeutic applications? for this and indeed in the cancer trials and the addiction trials uh there are but then the other question and this is bringing it back around to meditation is okay so how does this fit with what we do when we meditate and of what value is this to initiating meditation practice or to long-term practice so so um So I'll get into those studies in just a second, but I want to just back up uh, a couple of years and just describe my own practice in the interim. So I was initiated to meditation through Siddha Yoga, and then I have uh, ventured into different meditation traditions, but um, I've I've landed uh, with uh, Buddhism, uh, you know, having done... Uh, retreats with Alan uh, Wallace, and mostly through uh, IMS, Tara Brock, uh, Joseph Goldstein, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 that uh, language and holding of what's going on makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and uh, but it's an interesting contrast from the city yoga that was. Uh, so strongly experientially based which the uh, which is really the focus of a psilocybin experience but but it 's really the consequence of what you do with that experience right it 's of ultimate uh, importance, and that 's a continuing contemplation uh, to me so one of the things I have come to say is that um, uh, meditation and psilocybin are complementary approaches for investigation of the nature of mind. And meditation is the tried and true course for doing that because, you you know, you don't sit on a meditation retreat without really looking and feeling and experiencing and getting insight into the way your mind works. and uh, And I see... I see the work with psilocybin as a complementary process, and it's the crash course in mindfulness because uh, one goes into that. A lot of the preparation for that experience, incidentally, is preparing people to be with an emergent experience over which they're going to have no control and to just sit back and to witness it, you know? And so we think actually meditation preparation is 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 perfect uh, for preparing people for such experiences but in both in both cases uh you you come away with a with a a new uh perceptual framework for understanding the nature of mind and i think that's fundamentally transformative i'm you know my thought is that that's you know, one of the key pieces of the value of meditation practice. I mean, we de-identify with, you know, thoughts and feelings and, you know, uh, our, our bodies. Uh, and we come to, you know, a recognition of a, an abiding awareness, uh, you know, that's remarkable and, and incredibly mysterious. And I think psilocybin somehow, and I don't quite know how, plugs into that same sensibility. So my sense has been that there's the potential for synergy uh, between psilocybin and meditation practice. And the first uh, study we did to directly examine that was to bring in, these were healthy volunteers with no prior exposure to either meditation or to psychedelics. And they, uh, it was a, a, a nine-month study, up to nine months, and they had to agree that they were coming in, that they would learn meditation, practice meditation, and they understood that they could have two or three psilocybin sessions over the course of the, of the nine months. People were randomly assigned to different conditions, Everyone um, uh, got a primer in in meditation, uh, and uh, were encouraged to practice daily. Uh, but half or or some of the volunteers had sessions, uh, psilocybin sessions that involved high doses of psilocybin. Two sessions, and the other the other or another group received um, psilocybin at very low doses. People didn't know that they could be randomly assigned either to a high or low dose. They, they understood that they could get a variety of doses across the study. Everyone by the end of the, of the study had gotten a high dose, but we were interested in the first six-month uh, follow-up period. And so under those, um, under those conditions, uh, and and, and I, I should also say there was a, a third group that got a, a high dose of psilocybin, but they also had more support for meditation practice. They were on a weekly basis with mm-hmm. uh, their meditation instructor.
0: Okay, so they had like high-dose meditation and high-dose psilocybin. Correct, correct. So it, it, was, it,
1: was, it, it was either what we call standard support for meditation, which was really quite minimal. They were given a book on meditation. They, you know, We spent several sessions uh, teaching meditation, uh, but then let them go off on their own with the encouragement to practice daily. Uh, so there were t- uh, two groups that had that, and then, and then one of those groups had a low dose of psilocybin, and one had a high dose of psilocybin. And then the third group had the high support meeting weekly and a high dose of psilocybin. Okay, okay, so at six months, these groups look uh quite quite different in terms of the outcome measures um, uh, and the uh, the important point I think you know for your uh audience would be that psilocybin potentiated the outcome measures over and above just standard meditation, so You know, people who had the psilocybin plus the the meditation, you know, were showing at six months, you know, stronger effects on on trait measures such as gratitude and life meaning, uh, interpersonal uh, closeness, uh, forgiveness. Um, They certainly had had very different kinds of session experiences. But the interesting piece was, you know, what was going to, what was happening months after the session, and then the high dose high support group was higher yet uh, as as we would expect and um, and for all of our positive trait outcome measures, they were related to the intensity of spiritual practice, so the frequency of meditation or the frequency of doing daily awareness practices. Uh, appeared to be a significant determinant of these outcome measures which you know what didn't surprise us but in addition to that the extent to which psilocybin had produced these so-called mystical experiences was also an independent and very powerful factor so that that fits with my sense that there's a synergy uh mm-hmm. Between these kinds of approaches mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. well and it's i mean what's exciting about what you're sharing to me is um it, it fits in a way that brings some some empirical you know heft to it and it's not just anecdotal because the anecdotal uh evidence for that i think has been around for quite a while um that, that those two can can somehow be complementary um and then, of course, there's plenty of perspectives that diverge from that and, and think that they're not complementary. But we could talk about that, too.
1: Yeah, well, we can talk about that as we talk about the study that we're running presently, which is the one that's um, in some ways mo- most interesting to me. And that's okay. the effects of psilocybin in long-term meditators. Okay. And, uh, and so that's a study that's ongoing we are continuing to recruit for that study and so I'm delighted for this opportunity to let your podcast audience know of this study We're recruiting in uh, we' have recruited in to date about half of our 40 participants in this study what we're what we're looking for in this study is people with long-term uh, meditation practices the longer the the better as, as far as we're concerned, uh, you know, decades would be, uh, ideal. Um, and people who have had ideally no experience with classic hallucinogens, or if they've had any experience, it should have preceded their involvement with meditation. Because again, we're, we're interested in the, in what, someone with an established meditation practice, what their experience of psilocybin is and whether it is of benefit or use to them or is it potentially detrimental to them? What You know, what's going on? We think that the long-term meditators are a fascinating group to look at because they have spent so much time in contemplative practice, examining the nature of their mind. They have an understanding of that, a vocabulary about describing that, uh, that our healthy non-meditating volunteers simply simply don't have, so they can bring unique perspective into the study. Um, And uh, we're doing, the study involves... um, uh, one to three psilocybin sessions. We're doing some brain imaging work with this uh, before the sessions and after the sessions. And then we have a second study in which we give a lower dose of psilocybin to people in the scanner. Uh, Incidentally, when they're, and and we have different meditations that they do in the scanner, which is really uh, of interest to us. Um, And... And so, the, so that's, that's, that's the basic layout in the crudest sense. I can, I can tell you just informally that, um, that most of the participants to date report that the experience with psilocybin has, uh, has been insightful, and most would say that it has benefited both their sitting and their non-sitting practices and and different people would describe those benefits differently one one descriptor is that they'll they're they're more flexible with respect to their sitting meditation practice they're holding it less rigidly they're more curious about the nature of the kinds of um, phenomena that can arise and 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 how they want to hold their their practice so uh, so that's indeed it's a it's a interesting uh, ongoing study. We we during the psilocybin session itself, this part's kind of fun. We have people um, do uh, different periods of meditation, uh, and we just use very short periods of meditation on breath, uh, loving kindness, and open awareness. We rotate those meditations around, and then we have people make ratings about the the qualitative experience of those meditations on a variety of scales, like the stability, the vividness, equanimity, you know, mental effort, you know, etc. And uh, it's remarkable indeed, actually, uh, how much texture. People can report back after a mere two minutes of, of meditation. But we're very interested in, in whether psilocybin differentially affects engagement in these different types of practices. And um, and we don't have any formal analysis, but uh, it might not surprise you or anyone else uh. That, it, that there appears to, to be less stability in something like a shamatha practice with something like psilocybin, mm-hmm. but um, but there very well may be for some people uh, potentia- a potentiation of loving kindness and open awareness, and and that can and the experience different people can have can can vary. Uh, Remarkably across individuals. Um, what else can I say? I you know one thing I would like to say about the study is that before we started it uh, we talked to a, a lot of different Dharma teachers and that's another discussion about the fifth precept and and people who embrace our proceeding with studies of this type and those who uh, think that, uh, these kinds of this kind of work should not be done but um, but in in the course of that we needed to pilot the study out and we and we really wanted to find deep practitioners and if I can just tell the story about one practitioner we had this is a Zen a, a long-term Zen practitioner um, a teacher and who was uh, a senior teacher never before had a classic hallucinogen and had a deeply felt presence um, and, uh, and was very, very precise, a Zen like precision in the way that this individual used language. So words were chosen very carefully and uh, and purposefully. And so it was really interesting to hear this person's description of psilocybin. And, and this was one of our first volunteers. And so we gave this individual a high dose of psilocybin. And early on in the session, when asked, how, how is this going? The report was, well, you know, my mind is, my I'm seeing colors, I'm seeing all kinds of imagery. This isn't what I'm you know accustomed to and it doesn't seem very useful to me. If if this is what psilocybin is, um, you know, you can keep it. It was it was said, it was said in a compassionate and kind of observational way. It wasn't it wasn't judgmental, but it was very clear. <laughs> if this is psilocybin, it's, it doesn't feel very useful to me. And then, and then, maybe an hour later, uh, the individual said, um, "Oh, I get it. Uh, psilocybin is about meta. It's about loving-kindness." And so here's an individual senior teacher leads week-long retreats almost monthly, <laughs> has extensive experience with Metta and, and a variety of practices. And this individual was having the most powerful and insightful experience of Metta that they had ever had in their lifetime and claimed that it changed, uh, their approach to Metta, their approach to their students, uh, and was a, you know, of, of of great interest and of value. Mm So that's just, it's, it's one story, and it's it's not it's not typical because there is no typical story. But it sure fits with my sense that there's a there's a synergy here. We don't quite know how these things fit together. We don't quite understand how they go on, uh, but it does seem to be of value. Of course, one of the reservations that uh, was expressed to us by Dharma teachers before we initiated the study was, uh, you know, the possible downside risks. Uh, the, maybe among the most prominent being, is this going to lead to attachment or experience seeking? Is this actually going to be detrimental to, to practice uh, in that sense? And, um, and, and we don't have any... Suggestion from our follow-up of the of the volunteers we've had now that have gone past the six-month uh, point—that there's any such uh, downside risk—and there's—and they're surely not going off and and seeking out psilocybin again. These experiences, while profound, are are uh, are not not ones that uh, one. Would necessarily want to uh, repeat, and so um, there's not attachment in in that sense. The other the other kind of reservation that's been uh, expressed by people who are really long term practitioners, it's I I think it's just a basic fear that somehow they have spent decades polishing their the mirror of their mind, if you will. They have a level of attainment uh that uh, uh that they deeply value, and that they would consider taking psilocybin to potentially put that their level of attainment and their current state at risk
0: oh interesting
1: yeah, and you know scratch the mirror if you will <laughs> and um and again, we, we don't have anyone who has reported, uh, you know, detrimental effects, but, uh, you know, it doesn't mean in theory that it couldn't happen. And in fact, if someone came into the session with that as a a abiding fear, uh, you know, then they, they actually could have a rough, a rough session of it, you know, uh, because the experience of, Psilocybin is whatever is going to be manifest in the mind, and if you're, if you're holding on to, you know, a sincere uh, concern uh, that your state is going to be forever transformed in a negative way, uh, yeah, you might have a, a pretty miserable experience of it.
0: After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered. You're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.